Let's turn to in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 33. Genesis chapter 33. Have you ever faced a difficult family reunion? A difficult family reunion. One in which, on the one hand, perhaps you really wanted to see family members you hadn't seen in a very long time, and yet one in which, as you approached it, you were very unsure how this was going to go. <coughs> Perhaps there, were, there are old rifts that might be exposed again. Perhaps it's little things like the fact that you can't wait to see your family until you see them again, and then, then you all remind each other of why you annoy each other. <laughs> Difficult family reunions. Well, usually our difficult family reunions are actually easy compared to what we have to to look at today. The reunion of Jacob and Esau. The reunion of Jacob and Esau. This would be a difficult family reunion because it had been about 20 years and... <clears throat> both brothers knew <clears throat> excuse me both brothers knew that number one uh, Jacob had cheated Esau all those years ago and number two Esau had threatened to kill Jacob all those years ago so now they're going to see each other face to face again and I think you'll be uh, missing some important context for this reunion if you don't remember the, the sermon text from last week that Jacob was very afraid of what Esau would do, that Esau might, in fact, slaughter Jacob and all that were his when they met again. But Jacob realized, he was brought, uh, brought to face the fact that he must face God first, and that was the more important meeting of the two. In fact, God came in the form of a man who wrestled with Jacob in the darkness. But the outcome of that conflict was Jacob emerged broken, but blessed and renamed by God. No longer would he be Jacob, the, the deceiver, the trickster. He would be Israel, the one who struggles and prevails with God and men. So Jacob now has the confidence of God's blessing upon him as he approaches Esau. And yet the fear isn't all gone. There's still great hesitation and defensiveness, um, great angst. And so this chapter, chapter 33 of Genesis, rounds out, finishes up this section of Jacob's story. What will happen when he actually sees Esau face to face? We'll find out today. As Meredith Klein says, long put off, the confrontation with Esau follows now as an anticlimax to the decisive surprise encounter with the angel. Its outcome made clear beforehand by the blessing Jacob secured at Peniel. <clears throat> In other words, Jacob had met God face to face, who blessed him. And yes, he shall now be blessed. He knows God will not uh, let Esau um, harm him here. So he has to go forward in faith. 
The big idea, I think, in this, this account, in this text, is this. Jacob's return and reconciliation displayed God's grace to and in Jacob. I'll say that again. Jacob's return and reconciliation displayed God's grace to and in Jacob. Let's look at the account in this text. First of all, verses 1 through 3. Jacob's caution and prostration at Esau's approach. Jacob's caution and prostration at Esau's approach. We'll just read verses 1 through 3, first of all. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. It's quite the entourage. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times, until he came near to his brother. Well, Jacob's sins and weaknesses are not entirely absent in this account, are they? Uh, he, he positions his family so that his favorites are the safest from danger. He divides his family according to the status and affection he places on each wife. The servant wives, the concubines, are the closest with their children to Esau's threatening entourage. Next come Leah and her children. And last come beloved Rachel and Joseph. Of course, these divisions will produce bitter fruit until the greatest reconciliation in all Genesis, the one that concludes this book. <coughs> Excuse me. But still, that, that's not good, but still, Jacob does, does not hide behind his family. He places himself between them and the potential threat. And he's going to meet Esau first, before anyone else does. John Currid writes, and as he approaches his brother, he bows down to the ground. This is an act of submission that's well known from the ancient Near East, particularly from the Amarna letters. Bowing seven times indicates complete submission on Jacob's part. Normally one bow would be sufficient. Jacob's action is also an ironic reversal of chapter 27, verse 29, in which Isaac had blessed him by saying, may the sons of your mother bow down to you. But again, Jacob is wanting to emphasize the reverse of the blessing he stole from Esau. The blessing made him lord over his brothers so that his mother's sons would bow down to him. But now he continues to address Esau as his lord himself, as Esau's servant, as we saw in the last chapter. We'll see again this chapter. And now he, he bows low before his brother, though he is the one who has the blessing and the preeminence in the family by God's providence. So Jacob's caution and prostration at Esau's approach. <clears throat> now look at the contrast as soon as we get to verse 4. Verses 4 through 11, we see Esau's reception of Jacob's person and gift. Esau's reception of Jacob's person and gift. Verse 4, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him 
and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. thought it was funny one commentator mentioned some people just can't believe that Esau would really be this receptive of Jacob. So <clears throat> some Jewish commentators uh, have decided to, that um, this was mistranslated. Esau didn't kiss him, he bit him. <laughs> some people can't just can't accept this. But no, this is correctly translated. He ran to meet him. He embraced him. He fell on his neck and kissed him. Of course, a common show of affection at that time, apart from rom- romantic ideas, <laughs> but just that, that warm, familial affection. He kissed him and they wept. Verse 5, And when he saw lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? It's time for introductions. I haven't met your family yet. Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. There he goes again, calling himself your servant. (laughs) Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah, likewise, and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? He knows very well what Jacob means by it. Jacob has said, This is a gift. Remember, he had sent these droves, these hordes, really, of, of livestock. And said, these are all yours, Esau. Don't kill me. (laughs) Uh, But he said, they're a gift to my Lord from his servant Jacob. He had said that through his messengers last chapter. But Esau says, why why did you send me all these hundreds of animals as as an extravagant gift? What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Um. Again, the the contrast here is quite striking as people who know the culture of the time talk about it. Um, Esau is approaching Jacob like a long-lost brother that he can't wait uh, to be with again. Jacob is approaching Esau as a vassal would approach a sovereign (laughs) in royal court. Very formally, very submissively, presenting gifts of homage. And so there's this, this, this delicate interplay, this delicate dance between the two very different approaches here. <clears throat> Verse 4, it's interesting. When Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, Steinman says, this was not what Jacob expected. And the text makes a pun on Jacob's wrestling uh, with a man the previous evening and Esau's embrace. Um, Two words sound a lot alike in Hebrew. He had wrestled with God and now Esau embraces him. Derek Kidner points out that guilt and forgiveness are so eloquent in every movement of the mutual approach. 
that our Lord could find no better model for the prodigal's father at this point than Esau. He tells us to compare verse 4 with Luke 15, 20. He's right, as I thought about it, as I looked it up. Esau does here what Jesus later has the the prodigal's father doing when the prodigal returns home. (laughs) All the same actions. How fitting. Since, as Jacob says in verse 10, seeing Esau's face was like seeing God's face. Now Esau, Esau is not a regenerate godly man at all. Scripture tells us that. But in this encounter, God directed Esau's heart to reflect God's free grace toward Jacob. And that's amazing. Go to Luke 15 with me really quick. Luke 15. Read a little larger portion of it. I want to come back to it then in the application as well, to a different section of it. Luke 15, starting in verse 17, talks about how this this younger son of of a father demanded his part of the inheritance right then, and then he went and wasted it all on selfish um, partying and wild living. And then he couldn't even get a good job once famine struck in the land. He found himself eating what the pigs ate that he was that he was tending. And Luke fifteen seventeen says, when he came to himself, when this as we call him the prodigal son, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So indeed, it was as if Jacob was catching a glimpse of the face of God and his free grace towards him as Esau embraced him. They they kissed each other and wept as they were locked in embrace. As I said, I'll come back to that connection later. Back in our text in in Genesis 33, verses 9 through 11, Esau initially refuses Jacob's gift. He says, what did you mean by sending me all that? I have enough for myself. Keep, Keep what's yours. Esau wants to embrace Jacob freely, not on the basis of a payment or a ransom price. And yet Jacob refuses to accept Esau's refusal. Though he may have originally offered the gift in fear of Esau's wrath, Jacob still desires to give Esau this gift as a sign of his gratitude for Esau's mercy and grace. And think about it. 
Very similarly, God will not accept our deeds and worship as payment to obtain his grace. He refuses any legalist or sacramental system that treats his grace as something we can merit or barter for. But once we accept God's free grace in Christ alone, we will offer ourselves and our deeds and our worship in gratitude for God's free grace. And he accepts that. Again, though Esau himself was not a godly man, on this occasion he's very much displaying the free grace of God to sinners. God worked in his heart to do this on this occasion. Romans 12.1 tells us we ought to, like Jacob, be very ready to offer up everything in gratitude for forgiveness, in gratitude for grace. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So again, this idea of Jacob says, seeing your face, Esau, is like seeing the face of God. Meredith Klein says that at Peniel, Jacob saw God's face and his life was spared. Similarly, now he has seen the the dreaded face of Esau and has been favorably received. Esau's reconciled countenance reflected the countenance of the Lord lifted up on Jacob in peace. It's interesting, again, verse 11. Jacob says, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. There's that word blessing again. That's the theme word. Jacob stole the blessing from Esau. But now he is trying to stress to Esau, um, I, I, he was trying to express remorse for doing that. And now he's saying, accept my blessing, in a sense. Some of what God has given me. As Richard Belcher says, <clears throat> excuse me, Jacob is not here trying to reverse the blessing his father had given. But is showing repentance through his willingness to surrender to Esau the wealth that had come with the blessing. All right. The third part of this text is verses 12 through 17, which is Jacob and Esau's reconciled parting. Jacob and Esau's reconciled parting. Verse 12. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail. And that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. The implication is Esau could have people to help and protect Jacob's vulnerable entourage there. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths or shelters, sheds, you could say, for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Now, 
there's a lot of discussion here um, where um, the way people read this, Jacob uh, tells Esau he's going to come to him where he lives down in Seir, the land of Edom, and he never does. And uh, some think that Jacob never intended to. And that Jacob is, is deceiving Esau so that he is free to go on his way. Maybe. Uh, I'd prefer to leave that question open as to whether he Jacob meant himself to journey to Seir at some point. Um, the account here at, at this point, it summarizes a lot in a little space. The account here of, of dwellings that were built at Succoth and then at Shechem, as we'll see in a few verses, that seems to cover quite a number of years, maybe like a decade. <clears throat> and maybe during that time, Jacob could well have traveled down to see his brother Esau. It seems almost certain he did travel elsewhere during that time to see his father Isaac in southern Canaan. Um, Genesis simply doesn't give us all the details we'd like here for all the things that probably happened. Now, certainly, Jacob remains guarded. He's guarded in his newfound peace with, with Esau. He's not sure what to do with this quite. <laughs> and maybe Jacob is indeed less than forthright in some of his dealings here. But it also seems that Esau gets the point, probably. Jacob would rather remain separate, though reconciled. Let's go our separate ways, essentially. Um, it, it's I'm good. We, we've seen each other. We're good with each other. Let's live our separate lives. <laughs> and that's what happens. We do know, of course, uh, that at the very least, when their father Isaac died, Jacob and Esau were together again, burying their father and so on. We do know they saw each other again after this, but we don't have all the details we'd like. Um, but why, why did Jacob want to remain so separate from Esau? Well, there would have been some wise reasons to do that, even if Jacob didn't do it in the best possible way, perhaps. Um, Jacob was not, his itinerary was not to go down way south to Edom. He was going back to the place where God had appeared to him at Bethel. He was going back to fulfill vows of worship in the land of Canaan, on the other side of the Jordan River. Right now he's on the east side of the Jordan. And we'll see eventually he does get back there uh, and cross the Jordan and, and have a special scene of worship before the God who had brought him back. Also, there, Esau was now not the uh, promised line. He was part of the rejected line, and it was important that Jacob and his family stay somewhat separate from the Edomites over time. <clears throat> so that may have played in here. And in the short term, Esau probably still just made Jacob nervous. <laughs> so there's that too. So Jacob, instead of going down south, he, uh, he goes over by the Jordan River. And maybe this is a staging area for later getting all his animals and people across. But they stayed there for at least some time at Succoth, Succoth being um, Hebrew wording for the, the booths, the, the sheds, the, the temporary structures that were built there for the animals. Um, it says, uh, let's see here, verse 17, that he built himself a house there too. So apparently they spent, they spent some time at Succoth. 
But eventually, then, uh, we'll get to verses 18 through 20, um, where it'll talk about then Jacob moving to Shechem. And it seems, uh, some say, about a decade elapsed between Jacob leaving Laban's house in the far north and then um, what happens in chapter 34 at Shechem. So we come to verses 18 through 20, the fourth and last part of the text. Jacob's settlement and worship in the promised land. His settlement and worship in the promised land. Verse 18, And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land in which he had, pitched, uh, in which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. El Elohe Israel means God, the God of Israel. Shechem becomes an important place. This is where Jacob ends up. Shechem is kind of right in the very center, the heart of the promised land on the west side of the Jordan River. In the hill country there. Shechem becomes important in Bible history. Um, It's the place where Joshua addressed the tribes of Israel for the last time. It's where Joseph finally was buried after the Exodus. Later in Genesis 48, Jacob seems to grant Shechem to Joseph as a special inheritance. We'll get into that more, of course, later when we get further in the book. Uh, Here it says that Jacob purchased a portion of land near Shechem. But then in the next chapter, we'll see the events that led to Jacob's sons actually defeating and taking the city of Shechem and plundering it. Um, So more on all this later. But Shechem is an important place here. And things are being set up for chapter 34, where Jacob's daughter is defiled, and that leads to all sorts of mayhem. Well, the important part here, the most important part, is that once Jacob is on the west side of the Jordan River, and this is, this is very close to Bethel, and he'll actually go to Bethel later, as we'll see. This is very close to where Jacob had this vision from God appearing to him in grace. And so here Jacob erects an altar and calls it God, the God of Israel. So Jacob uses the new name that God had given him at Peniel, the one who struggled with God and by God's grace emerged broken but blessed. He uses God's new name for him, and he says, I am Israel, and this God is my God, essentially. He's starting to follow through on his vows of worship to the God who had kept him on all his wanderings and his journeys. All right. Applications of this text. Remember the big idea. Jacob's return and reconciliation displayed God's grace to and in Jacob. So I think we should ask ourselves the question, how should God's grace be seen in our reconciled relationships? How should God's grace be seen in our reconciled relationships? And again, I'm trying to stick closely to the text and the things we see in Jacob's life going on here. But then applying it to us, how should God's grace be seen in our reconciled relationships? First of all, and I'm going to word these applications as questions. 
First of all, do we gladly lay everything down for reconciliation? Do we gladly lay everything down for reconciliation? Before Jacob crossed the Jordan, retracing his steps to fulfill his vows of worship, he first reconciled with his brother. Do you understand that even worship is not as it should be until you have sought forgiveness from those you have wronged? And not just a formality of forgiveness, but the biblical goal of forgiveness, reconciliation. You know the difference there? Forgiveness is the formal putting away of an offense between brothers, saying this will not be counted against the sinner. But reconciliation is the restored relationship. A rectified and functional relationship insofar as is possible. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Verses 21 through 26. Before Jacob could really uh, completely fulfill his vows of worship, he had to be reconciled to his brother. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, in context here, is unfolding the, the real intent of God's law, rather than the, just the external keeping of it. But what was its real heart and intent? And here he uses the example of the command not to murder, Matthew five twenty one. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, literally whoever says to his brother, Raka, empty head, <laughs> will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, and here's an interesting twist. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember not that that you have something against your brother, but you remember there that your brother has something against you. You've done the sin. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. <clears throat> come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is what Jacob was doing. He knew he had sinned against Esau. He knew it. And so, he was doing everything he could to reconcile the relationship. And in order to be reconciled to his brother, Jacob was willing to prostrate himself as the lowest of servants. He was also willing to give extravagantly of his own possessions. Which he'd earned through hard toil and adversity. They belonged to him. <laughs> but he counted it a blessing, he said, to give this as a token of repentance and gratitude. Let's think about that willingness to go above and beyond in humbling himself before Esau. What excuses could Jacob have had to not go as far as he did? I think he could have had some understandable excuses. And are those excuses our excuses sometimes? 
Jacob could have said, well, I'll give some tokens of respect and apology, but I have my dignity to preserve in front of my group, my wives and sons and servants. I'm not going to grovel. Everyone needs to remember that I am Lord of Esau. The blessing said so. And we are brothers. I'm not his servant or anything. I may bow once, but not make a scene with bowing seven times or anything. And anyway, I'm not going to act like I'm the only one at fault here. Esau should be asking me for forgiveness too. Sure, I was the one who cheated him years ago. But I know he and dad were out to secretly get away with leaving me out of the blessing. I know what they were up to too behind the scenes. They were directly fighting God. They knew the prophecy that I would get the blessing, but they were trying to get it by stealth. And Esau knowingly sold his birthright to me for a bowl of soup. Sure, I shouldn't have suggested it, but Esau knew what he was doing. And Esau didn't deserve the birthright or the blessing. He doesn't care about God's covenant with our fathers. He married those Hittite women that made life miserable for everyone. All he cares about, last I checked, is his sport and his stomach and his women. So I'm not going to pretend that he's the saint and I'm the sinner. Now, now, don't we all naturally just feel that way in these sorts of situations? Maybe I'll apologize a little bit. Maybe I'll humble myself a little bit. But there's a line here. <laughs> we all are like that. Because we're all sinners. Do we pull up short of wholehearted humility and repentance because we're too focused on ourselves and how we look, our reputations, saving face in front of onlookers? <clears throat> or maybe we pull up short because we want everything to be fair and we want others to share the blame? Or maybe we just not, cannot imagine confessing our sins against those who would never confess their own sins. Remember who Esau is. <laughs> You know, sometimes we need to humble ourselves before godless people, as Jacob did before Esau. How else do you propose that godless people see God's grace at work in us? Let's also think about Jacob's joyful parting with his goods. This reminds me of Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Wee little man was he... Uh, that the tax collector, the despised chief tax collector in Jericho, who nobody trusted, and everyone grumbled when Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down here, I, I'm going to be at your house today. Well, Luke 19, people are seeing little Zacchaeus, the little rat, hurrying and coming down, and Jesus receiving him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. He didn't have to do that. The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. When we know we've defrauded somebody, 
and we're repentant. We, like Jacob, like Zacchaeus, will joyfully part with our goods or whatever we need to part with to make it right. So that's the first point of application. As we look at Jacob's example here, do we gladly lay everything down for reconciliation? Number two, flipping it around a bit. Do we gladly receive humble penitents, people who are repentant? Do we gladly receive humble penitents as God receives them? This is a splash of cold water, maybe. If profane Esau could do this, why can't we? If profane Esau, who doesn't give a hoot about godliness, can do this on this occasion, why don't we? Do we gladly receive humble penitents as God receives them? Well, often it's not... Often it's those who think of themselves as righteous and who are used to looking down on the unrighteous who have the hardest time being happy about repentance and forgiveness. And that's where I want to go back to Luke 15. The parable of the prodigal son, Luke 15, starting in verse 25. Remember that parable parable of the prodigal son? The father in that parable did for the prodigal what Esau did for Jacob. Because he, because the father in the parable represents God the father and what he does for the sinner. But in the parable, the older brother is not happy for the younger brother. There's no brotherly reconciliation there. Only bitter resentment that the younger brother has returned and been welcomed. Luke fifteen twenty five. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. When we are confronted with the prospect of being reconciled to an offender, do we reflect the face of our gracious God, Or will they see in our face the hostile accusations of Satan himself? Turn to 2 Corinthians 2 as we think about this. 2 Corinthians 2. Paul speaks here of a painful letter he had had to write to the church at Corinth. But he talks about the fact that the church at Corinth had actually responded rightly to that letter and they had had to put someone out of the church because of it. But now that person has repented. So what do they do now? Second Corinthians 2 verse 3, Paul says, And I wrote as I did, so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, 
not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough when when they excommunicated him. So, verse 7, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Apparently he'd repented. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake and the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Who is it that wants permanent rifts among brothers? Who is it that wants to accuse the people of God without any mercy? It's Satan. That's what his name means, accuser. And God's people, as as Paul says right here, we have to be careful not to be outwitted by Satan and unknowingly take Satan aside as we don't want to receive penitent people. If Esau could receive penitent people... (laughs) As God worked in his heart on one occasion, we should be able to also. Romans 15 verses 5 through 7 says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, you in the church at Rome, to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. For the glory of God. Rather than taking Satan's side. Whenever we can. Whenever there's repentance. Even an attempt at repentance. We need to welcome each other as Christ has welcomed us as sinners. That's our job as Christians. Third and last. This one, not so much about reconciliation, but just the relationship then. Do we prioritize fellowship with man or fellowship with God? Now, I'm taking a bit of a turn here, trying to include something else that was in the text. Let me explain. Do we prioritize fellowship with man or fellowship with God? Some people call on God when they need his help with a broken human relationship. But once the relationship is no longer endangered, God is largely forgotten. Not so with Jacob. Actually, in Jacob's case, he sought reconciliation with Esau largely because of his relationship with God. Yes, he feared Esau, but he also wanted a clear conscience. And when he was out of danger from his brother, when Jacob's life was as peaceful and prosperous as it had ever been, Jacob focused all the more attention upon worship. What did he do then? Well, he built an altar to God, the God of Israel. But we know that's not always how it goes, right? Let me ask you, do you perhaps use God mostly as a means to achieve your other relationship goals? I think a lot of people do. 
What might be some signs that you actually want to please people more than you want to please God? That you value human relationships more than fellowship with God? Well, do you come to church or do something religious only when certain people will notice? You're looking for their approval, but when they're not in the picture, kind of like, you know, the Old Testament, King Joash did right as long as the high priest Jehoiada who had raised him as long as he was alive, but once he died, it was all different. (laughs) Do you do what you know is right for other people to see so that that relationship will be right? And then when they're not looking, it's a different story. Is your prayer life completely consumed with asking God to make your relationships better? Is that why you really want God's ear? Just so you'll have a good relationship with people? You want a good family life? You want a good marriage? Do you get serious about spiritual things mostly when your marriage is in trouble? Or when you're worried about your relationship with your kids? Or maybe this. Are you tempted to give up on your local church because you're having serious difficulties with key people in that church? In other words, you were committed to that church not so much because the Lord loves that church, but because people at that church treated you well. I realize there are times when we have to sorrowfully leave a church in order to please God, but we can also be too quick to leave a church because of stormy relationships. Or another sign that you value human relationships more than fellowship with God is this. Maybe you claim to be a Christian, but you shift your definition of God's law and God's gospel to fit the people you love. Perhaps you're tempted not to be so adamant about moral purity when it's your family member living with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Or when it's your friend that just came out as sexually deviant. Perhaps you don't want to think too hard right now about what right worship is or how we should treat the Lord's Day. Because you don't want to think badly of your friend's church or you don't want to mess up your family's expectations on Sundays. Perhaps you want to accept more than one way to God because you don't want to judge your non-Christian friends. You want God, but you're willing to change what he actually said to keep the human relationship. Maybe you shy away from defining abortion as murder because you have friends who confided in you about getting an abortion and you don't want to hurt them. Well, we have to learn to warmly love others without excusing or accepting their sin. And you must love others by refusing to give them anything but the true gospel, because that's the only thing that can save their souls, however they feel about it. Don't shy away from the crucified and risen Christ because he might offend your neighbor. All right. Did some scattershot there on various signs, perhaps, that maybe we're prioritizing fellowship with man over fellowship with God. But let me assure you, by the word of God, that your human relationships will never be right 
if they are supreme. Your human relationships will never be right if they are supreme. Yes, you must love your neighbor as yourself. Laying down your very life for those around you. But that's the second greatest commandment. Get two there. Not the first. The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God far beyond your love for anyone or anything else. Your love for God has to be in a category all its own, unmatched and unrivaled. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Your human relationships must be part of your love for God, not vice versa. To have an to have an affection for others or to seek their affection with all your heart and soul and might, no reservations, no limits, that's to worship them. And that's idol worship. Worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And your righteously jealous God will not tolerate rivals for your heart. Friend, to love people as you ought, you have to first love God supremely and unreservedly. And you cannot love God sincerely and rightly until you're reconciled to him. You have to be reconciled to God through the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. And if you're not, you can work on all the human relationships you want to. But... It's all for nothing in the end if you're not reconciled to God. That's why as we will celebrate this afternoon in the table, God gave his own son, Jesus Christ, to be that reconciliation with God because he made him who knew no sin to be sin and treated as sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took the place of us as sinners. Though he was holy, God poured out his wrath against our sins on him. And if you come to him, cling to that and that alone as you're standing with God and that you can have the perfectly righteous standing of Christ before God because of the cross, you'll be reconciled to God. You'll have peace with God. Then you can love God as you ought. And then you can love others rightly as an outflow of that. And if you are reconciled to God already, remember that all your human loyalties must serve your loyal love for the triune God. All your human loyalties have to serve your loyalty to God, the God who made you, the God who loved you, the God who reconciled you to himself at his own incalculable expense. He gave his own son for you. Love God first, as Jacob was learning to do, and then others as a manifestation of that highest love. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verses 37 through 39, and with this I close, Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me 
is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So these are the applications this morning. Number one, do we gladly lay everything down for reconciliation? Number two, do we gladly receive humble penitence as God receives them? Number three, do we prioritize fellowship with man or fellowship with God? Let's bow together in prayer. Father, these are all really hard truths, perhaps some of the hardest for us to really be consistent with in our own lives. Lord, we ask that anyone who's not even reconciled to you today will prize that above all things and will find it in Jesus. And we ask that those who are reconciled to you will live that out consistently in their relationship with you and their relationship with people. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnals to number 27. Uh, Number 27, Great is Thy Faithfulness. As As we think about seeking to be right with God and man, we can only be firm in those commitments if we're sure of God's faithfulness to us. Jacob was assured of God's faithfulness as he faced Esau. He'd been first assured of God's blessing the night before. And we have to be assured that God is faithful. Whatever we have to do for reconciliation, whatever we must do to be, to welcome repentant people, whatever we have to do to rightly order our relationships with God and man, God will be faithful to keep us each step of the way.